people are put in four-point restraints on gurneys. They're forcibly stripped. They're forcibly injected with medications that could last for a month or two in their bodies. Like, this can be a very intense and traumatizing process for people to go through. I think everyone should be concerned about it because if it happens to you or someone you care about, it's shocking and very disturbing. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling in today, we have Rob Wypond. Rob is an investigative journalist who frequently writes about the interfaces between psychiatry, civil rights, policing, surveillance and privacy, and social change. His articles have been nominated for 17 magazine and journalism awards, and his new book, Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships, is out now. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Rob, welcome. I loved your book, but as someone who lived with bipolar disorder, I, I have to admit, I found it super disturbing. Now, your your book is all about the problems with psychiatric detentions and forced treatment. And I, I think when most people hear about this subject, they're like, well, look, you, you got the crazy, violent, scary, dangerous, mentally ill person off the streets. Why is this a problem? Why is this a controversial subject? What's next? You're going to say that criminals shouldn't be in prison? That's the general attitude that I hear when I talk about involuntary hospitalization and forced treatment, that it's okay, it's a necessary evil, and it's a public safety measure, and these laws surrounding it are designed to keep us safe. The best that I can really get is somebody acknowledging that the person who is involuntarily treated is going to go through some sort of trauma or or have a negative experience in it. But all in all, they don't see a problem with this in any way. Is this line of thought that this is a necessary evil, these laws are here to protect us, and it's a public safety measure part of the problem? Yeah, it's a real problem that all of the media attention around involuntary commitment has focused on really a relatively small subgroup of people who get targeted by these laws. So when people are violent, they're actually getting committed under a different set of laws altogether, a different process altogether when they plead not guilty by reason of insanity. I barely touch on that in my book. My book is focused on civil mental health laws. So the ones that are meant to be helping relatively ordinary people like ourselves who may go through crises in our lives and act in ways that could put us in some sort of risk, a a risk of potentially hurting yourself in some way, getting into a dangerous situation of some kind, perhaps, because you're not behaving under the normal ways you might have behaved uh, previously. So I kind of say we're just over-focusing on that group. If we want to understand what these laws are, how they work, who's being affected by them, we have to step back and really look at the vast spectrum of people who are being affected. This is happening to like literally millions of people across America where they're getting detained in psychiatric hospitals when somebody around them thinks that they might be struggling in some way. People do it because they think they're helping someone else. And when someone gets caught up in that system, it can be quite risky because 
it's a really wide open exercise. We don't really have clear definitions of what mental disorders are. These laws have broadened a lot now. They're not focused only on dangerousness at all. So they give broad discretion to psychiatrists to hold people for prolonged periods and potentially give them a powerful psychotropic drugs against their will. Even before we get to a guardianship and all of that, which is a long-term thing, in the short term, you can be held for for days or weeks, and forced treatment is, is often not a nice process. If you agree to go along, sure, but if you say, no, I've tried that drug, I don't want it, it doesn't help me, I don't like the adverse effects, I want to try some other kind of treatment, is there something other than drugs available? Well, now we have security guards, we have restraints, people are put in four-point restraints on gurneys. They're forcibly stripped. They're forcibly injected with medications that could last for a month or two in their bodies. This can be a very intense and traumatizing process for people to go through. And that goes to your original question of why would people be concerned about this? I think everyone should be concerned about it because if it happens to you or someone you care about, it's shocking and very disturbing. What did you mean when you say that the laws are not focused on dangerousness? Because my understanding is that the standard is literally eminent harm, that you can only be involuntarily hospitalized if you are a danger to yourself or others. Are you saying that's not true? Yeah, most states have, and Canadian provinces, I will add, have largely ignored the Supreme Court cases in both countries that were set around dangerousness. And all the laws have been whittled down to be much broader than that now. Even the application of dangerousness isn't what people would ordinarily imagine. The Supreme Court tried to make it that, like a real imminent threat uh, expressed through vocalizations of like, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to harm myself. Like they really tried to kind of lay it down in that way. But by and large now in actual hearings and in actual situations, it's much more about being at risk of potentially in future, maybe, and even many laws have gone far beyond that. Like the most common one now that's really gone far is to just simply say, if you in future might meet the criteria for being detained, well, we're going to forcibly drug you to prevent you from getting into that state. You could be at risk of possibly deteriorating in some way. That's literally the wording in some of these laws. So it's very unclear, very Orwellian almost in its phrasing. So it's not even that you're actively hurting yourself, but somebody's just looking at you going, well, I'm thinking based on your circumstances that you might not be able to meet your physical needs in some way, and therefore I'm going to detain you. Some of the largest mental health advocacy groups in America are saying that detaining people like this is in fact a good thing. That if someone is looking at a loved one and they're saying, look, I'm telling you, I know my loved one. They might look like they're doing okay right now, but they're going to become violent. They're going to become suicidal. They're going to have an issue. They're heading down a bad path and they're not going to be able to take care of themselves. It's coming. I can tell you as their mother, father, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, trusted confidant that it is coming. These organizations say that this is crime prevention. It it keeps people's loved ones safe. It keeps the public safe. And they have all sorts of reasons that we don't need to listen to the person with the mental illness. They lack insight. They don't have the ability to know what's best. They can't help themselves. And these are all of the reasons that they give that that someone else, the, the, the public, the police, law enforcement, doctors, hospitals need to step in. 
it, it, it's always, always, always tabled as being helpful to the person with mental illness. And that if we left them to their own devices and did nothing, that would be the cruel thing. We would be setting them up to fail, that we would just be leaving them in harm's way. They, they really look at it as, as a protective factor. It really is always tabled as, yeah, they may be okay now, but trust me, there's going to be a problem later, and that's why it's okay to intervene. I want to ask what you have to say to all of that, because I, I really do think that these groups and these parents and these loved ones, they're they're well-intentioned. I, I don't think this comes from a place of malice. They believe that they are doing the right thing, but it seems like it often doesn't turn out well. Wow, that's quite a question you've asked there. I want to point out, I think it's very important that really you just covered like eight chapters in my book where I kind of break each of the little assumptions or beliefs that are within that question, right, that people articulate and, and break them down. So let's try to do a few of them quickly now, right, but the question of insight. And and that's just a very amorphous term that when we really think about, it, well, what does that actually mean? Are we saying this person literally doesn't know who they are, where they are, what they are? Like, are we saying that a person who's got a label of schizophrenia or psychosis or, or depression or anxiety is as out of it as a person who has severe dementia and literally can't remember their own name or where they are? Is that what we're saying? Because that's almost never the case, right? And, and in actual practical terms, if you look at hearings like I did, if you're watching this play out, legal scholars write about this. By and large, insight in a mental health context means you agree with the psychiatrist. If, as soon as you disagree with the recommendation of the psychiatrist that you have diagnosis X and you need drug Y, you can be labeled as having lack of insight. And this is so clear. This is so undisputed in a legal framework that a lot of states have actually written this literally into law. So you can go to read the laws and you will see a statement to the effect of, if you disagree with the psychiatrist's recommendation, you can be changed from a voluntary patient to an involuntary patient. So that's how clear this really is. And it's not often talked about. We just sort of assume that insight has this grander meaning to it that just isn't borne out in the science. So that's one piece of that puzzle that I think is really important. But what about the parents? The majority of people pushing for these kinds of laws and this kind of interventions are parents of adult children with mental illness, and they claim that they have insight into their kids' best interests. They know their children, and they know that this will be helpful. Now, you've been talking about problems with doctors or hospitals, but family members are often the ones pushing for this, not the medical establishment. Yeah. So I have a couple concerns about that that are really deep. And one of the biggest ones is this is, of course, a very important group. This is the strongest lobby group in America and Canada that have been reshaping these laws. Family members are very vocal and very passionate about trying to forcibly drug their own loved ones. And they have influence legislation around the country. So this is the dominant voice on these issues. And one of my biggest concerns is that almost never, when these families are talking, do they seem to have any awareness that some families are abusive. Now, I don't want to accuse those particular people of anything. What I'm saying is you have to look at America and what we know about family abuse and know that it is very common. Child sexual abuse, 
physical abuse, uh, parents themselves who have emotional difficulties of different kinds. And so you need to account for that. If you're going to lobby legislators to expand the powers of families to make sure that someone else in the family gets forcibly medicated, heavily tranquilized against their will, you need some sort of level of accountability and oversight to ensure that this is not nefariously and abusively used by a family member who doesn't have the best of intentions in mind. And this is really common, and this is what I found, is that it's doctors just don't have the time or resources to do you know, an extensive investigation into a family and really figure out what's truly going on here. So they often just take the testimony at face value, go, oh, that's how person X was behaving? Okay. And, and this testimony is enormously powerful. So I just want to say to those people, be careful, please. When you're advocating, don't think about only your own situation. Think about other families and how well do you really know them. The other piece I want to highlight is this does create an enormous rift in families that can go on for years and decades. And often they're struggling really because they don't have any other resources. This is the only thing that's available today. If you want help for somebody who's really struggling, people are coached and taught to admit them to a psychiatric hospital. And as one psychiatrist said to me, I think a lot of families have illusions about what we can do up here. We don't really solve people's problems. We only medicate them. And there's a percentage of people that does help, but there's a very large percentage. It really doesn't make a huge difference in their lives. And so then families start putting pressure on these doctors, keep them longer, do more, and then they'll sue if, if these people aren't cured. But this, again, I want to emphasize, and I really want to um, highlight how this really distorts the public discussion around these issues, because this is a relatively small group. When, again, there are many other people that are being affected by these same laws. When you create a law that's so broad and so powerful, right? Yeah, but nobody thinks about it like that. People believe that there are safeguards in place and that everybody involved is well-intentioned and we're just taking care of and loving and supporting and helping people. And and frankly, the majority of the public cannot understand why there is such a fuss. They don't get why anybody would be against this. Exactly. Because there's a huge lack of data coming out. So even just the numbers alone, when I looked into that, I found that the people often say, oh, we hardly ever forcibly treat anyone anymore. But anywhere we can get decent data, and it's very hard because a lot of hospitals, a lot of states are not actually formally tracking this data or they're hiding it. But wherever we get good data, we see the numbers have been increasing and increasing a lot for decades now. And we have more beds far more beds than people recognize. The only number that's typically cited in news articles is the number of state hospital beds. Well, that's a fraction of the number of beds that are out there. And I actually ultimately calculated 60 times as many beds as is typically cited. It's certainly much, much more than is typically discussed. So that's important to know. And so we don't track outcomes. There's anecdotal stories out there, but do people get better? Do they actually, you know, somehow at some point in this process become glad that they were forcibly treated? Are they getting worse? We don't know. Because a lot of evidence suggests they might get worse. So there's all sorts of reasons to suspect that 
forcibly treating somebody over a prolonged period might be very detrimental to their long-term functionality. But we're not tracking that at all. So this is a real concern. And the other thing I highlight was the terrible lack of oversight. So basically, it's just simply government watching itself in a lot of cases, or these institutions watching themselves. And I found rampant, widespread egregious cases of abuse that go way beyond what we're talking about right now, um, going on really in almost every state in the country where these hospitals get reprimanded and their wrists slap, but it just goes on and on and on because there's no reasonable penalties in a lot of cases. We need more robust protections, and that should be occurring in the legal context. So Right now, psychiatrists have extraordinarily broad powers and discretion. Judges who are supposed to oversee these situations and make independent decisions. But unfortunately, right now, most judges really just follow the lead of psychiatrists. They look at this as a medical issue, even though, by and large, it's not. There's no medical evidence that's put forth. What's put forth is subjective, anecdotal types of evidence about people's behavior, not any sort of analysis of what's actually going on in the biochemistry of their brains. But even then, judges simply defer to the expert opinion of psychiatrists. And this is really problematic. And we have to change that. And that needs to change legislatively in how these laws are written. But also, there needs to be a, a real re-education of judges across the country about how to be more independent of psychiatric opinion in these kinds of cases. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me, Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. And we're back with the author of Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships, Rob Wipond. As a man who lives with bipolar disorder, one of the things that always disturbs me is that there are all of these laws and procedures from how somebody like me can be forcibly committed or medicated against their will. But we don't seem to have a plan for how this ends, because once you get caught up in the system, there doesn't seem to be a clear path to get out of the system. I love analogies, and the example that I always use is, is what happens if somebody is unconscious. Obviously, someone who is unconscious can't make decisions about their own treatment. So frankly, they are the ultimate in lacking insight. So if EMTs or bystanders find me unconscious, they do what they think is best for me to save my life. They don't have to ask my opinion. They don't have to get my consent. They don't have to consider you know, really my, my thoughts or feelings a, at all. However, once I regain consciousness, once I regain insight, they do immediately. They do. Once I am awake and alert, what I say goes. And that includes if I tell them to stop treating me, even if they disagree, they have to stop. They have to follow my wishes. And everyone agrees that that makes sense. So what is the equivalent of regaining consciousness in mental illness? How do I know when the person has regained their insight and it's time for everyone to step back? What is that definition? And whenever I ask anybody about it, it's always, we know it when we see it. Well, you can just tell Well, this is why you have doctors. Just no one seems to have a clear answer. 
It doesn't seem to be spelled out in the law. It doesn't seem to be well understood. Now, am, am I wrong about that? It just seems to be this incredibly nebulous idea of how or when a person gets their power, control, and autonomy back. Well, you're absolutely right. And it is one of the most dangerous aspects of these laws, that it is not clear at all. No one even attempts to articulate it. It's not codified anywhere in law. And to my knowledge, it's not even, I've not even seen it in the scientific literature. It really is just a case of whenever we decide that you're free to make your own decisions again. And, and how that actually plays out in practice is that, and again, I'm not just making this stuff up. This is what you'll literally hear discussed in these kinds of hearings where this, this issue comes up, where a patient is saying, hey, like, I'm okay. I want to make my own decisions. Like, I kind of understand your perspective on my situation, and they can recite it perfectly. Yeah, you think I'm this, and you think that, and okay, I see where you're coming from, but I'm coming from a different place, and let me articulate why I want these things. And then the argument usually hinges on the, the judge is essentially saying back to you, like, I'm sorry, clearly you're doing better on these drugs, therefore you should stay on them, regardless of what you want. So your own sanity, if you will, um, your own sanity works against you. It, it prevents you from getting freedom. Conversely, in, this, in a catch-22, if you're not really articulate in what you want, they use the same argument. They say, well, you're on the drugs and you're still not doing better. So we really think you probably need even more drugs, if anything, but definitely got to stay on them. So it becomes a no-win situation, very much a catch-22. And that's very, very dangerous. This topic is very difficult for me, Rob, because I, I, I want to give full disclosure to you and the audience. I was committed to a psychiatric hospital almost 20 years ago now. I was placed on a 72-hour hold uh, because I was a danger to myself. I was actively suicidal, and I absolutely needed to be there. And I can tell you unequivocally that it absolutely saved my life. And, and I always thought that my experience was, was typical for everyone. I was evaluated by a psychiatrist. I was brought in by a friend, and, and she provided me with support. I was only there for three days, and then I was released to a step-down unit. Now, now, young and naive Gabe believed that there were safeguards in place. And, and then years later, I learned that there's, well, frankly, not a lot of safeguards in place and that things could have gone very differently for me. It's possible that I could have been kept there for weeks against my will. I could have been forcibly medicated with these, like you said, super intense medications with lasting side effects. And all of this could have happened without me contributing or consenting in any way. I did not understand while I was there how powerless I actually was. And that scares me to think about now. But but here is where I struggle, Rob. It still saved my life. And it's what started me on the path to getting well. I, I really do see that psychiatric commitment as the first domino towards me reaching recovery. I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm like, everything you say is terrible and, and it 100% happens. And I agree with you. I know that you are telling the truth. You're not making this up. You're not being dramatic. And and I, I know what you're saying is accurate, and, and that's why I'm so frightened. But on the other hand, I know that being committed to a psychiatric hospital absolutely saved my life. How do I reconcile these two things? Well, I like to talk about 
the situation you were in, and already the way you've described that, I'm getting the sense that you were treated respectfully in this situation, that you felt that you were rapidly put into a collaborative sort of situation, like, hey, what's going on? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so far, you're you're describing it pretty well. Exactly. And that works for people. And I call that nominally involuntary. So perhaps, I don't know how you ended up there, whether you went in on your own or were cajoled by your, your friends or whatever. But, but some people can, even if they're brought in by police, some people will, in retrospect, say, yeah, you know, I was behaving like pretty wacky. And I can see that I was annoying my neighbors at a level that, yeah, if someone else was doing it, I'd want to see them detained. So people can understand understand that. I don't know many people have a big problem with that. And I think if the situation plays out respectfully and collaboratively, it is quite different. And many patients say that too. If at least everyone involved in the system was treating them respectfully throughout the process, something like, we're really sorry that we feel compelled to hold you right now. Let us explain why and let's talk together about what we can do. You know, really, that's more like open dialogue or one of these other alternatives where people collaborate together to find the best solution. It's more like an equal process. Let's talk about collaborative solutions. Together. That's completely different. That is really not forced treatment in the way it's playing out in our society for a lot of people right now. Rob, thank you so much for all of this great information, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you like this topic and want to hear more of Rob's insights, there is a part two that is available for listening right now. You can also find out more information about Rob on his website, which is robwapond.com, and his new book is called Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships, and it's available right now. My name is Gabe Howard, and I'm an award-winning public speaker, and I could be available for your next event. I'm also the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations, which you can get on Amazon, or you can grab a signed copy with free show swag or learn more about me by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Wherever you downloaded this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show. It is absolutely free. And hey, can you do me a favor? Recommend the show, whether it's on social media, a support group, in person, by the water cooler. Hell, send somebody an email or a text message or give your mom a phone call. She likes hearing from you because sharing the show is how we grow. And I'll see everybody in part two. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.